spotlighting Hawaii's leaders. We want to bring in Governor David E. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Lieutenant Governor, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Mayor Derek Kawakami. Thank you so much, uh, Senator, for being here. Spotlighting the issues. Where is the virus right now in our community? How much is this overall going to cost the state? How are you responding to the community's concerns? Talk about the level of citations that you guys are writing. Spotlight Hawaii with Yanji Denise and Ryan Kalei Suji on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs. Well, happy Aloha Friday. Thanks so much for tuning in here to Spotlight Hawaii on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. I'm Ryan Kalei Suji, joined by Yanji Denise. And this morning, Yanji, we spotlight an issue that often goes unnoticed until something happens within our community that requires a broader conversation, but one that's a very important topic to discuss. That's right. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and so we've invited Nancy Creedman, CEO of the Domestic Violence Action Center, to join us this morning. Nancy, thanks for being here. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for having me. You know, we invited you on, of course, because this is a conversation that needs to happen. And right away in the in the morning, the headline uh, reading about a 81 year old man uh, arrested on suspicion of murder in connection with the death of his 76 year old wife. Um, you know, we still don't know the full details of what all went on, but when you see something like this, I mean, it really shows us that this issue has no age limit. Definitely not. Domestic violence uh, does not discriminate uh, age, um, profession, racial group, socioeconomic class. As a community, it's our obligation, really, to look carefully, look closely, and look repeatedly at uh, the problem of domestic violence. Uh, mostly the community gets interested in the problem when we uh, suffer a traumatic loss like this um, and during Domestic Violence Awareness Month, but we urge our uh, leaders and influencers and businesses and educators and clergy, law enforcement to keep a sharp focus on the problem because families are suffering. You know, when you see a headline like this, it often is shocking, as you said, and it, it brings this conversation back to the forefront. But I, I want to kind of step back a little and rewind the clock uh, based on, you know, what you've seen happen because of COVID-19. The last time you were on this uh, platform in this conversation that we had, we discussed uh, some of the impacts COVID had on those who were, you know, re uh, sort of restricted to their own uh, home and, and not really having the opportunity to have an outlet and, and thus sometimes suffering more because uh, there was no way to get out of their own domestic um, abuse that they were suffering at. What have you seen since COVID-19? How have things evolved since that time? Well, we were very frightened at the outset uh, at the prospect of survivors being uh, prisoners of their abusive partners, uh, as you say, without any outlet. Um, we made a lot of adjustments to uh, the Domestic Violence Action Center's program services so that people could still reach us. Uh, we you know, added text and chat and we were available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, we uh, went on television a lot with uh, airtime, public service announcements so that people knew that we were still working and available and accessible. We wanted people to know that they had options. We uh, allowed uh, for Uber rides and hotel stays for those people who could escape. We showed up at uh, community events, food distribution centers and things like that. Um, what we see now is um, 
pretty significant trauma in the people who were prisoners during that period of time. Uh, the um, trauma is life-changing uh, when you are a prisoner and repeatedly, uh, frequently, and maybe more severely abused, um, you carry that with you for the, for the rest of your life, uh, whether you're a child witnessing it or a person experiencing the direct assaults. Um, we really have to adjust our community's resources to accommodate uh, the trauma and make more services available to uh, many more community members throughout the uh, state of Hawaii. And um, we, we need a, a life-sized investment. We've got a new administration coming in, new elected leaders coming in, new appointed leaders coming in. My plea is that they um, put uh, a focus and a plan and an investment in place to address uh, what has occurred. You know, we've been doing a lot of talking about uh, homelessness and how the community uh, has a responsibility to address homelessness. Um, when we hear our leaders talk about homelessness and the plans and the problems, they're talking about uh, people with mental illness and people with substance abuse problems. I don't ever hear them talking about families who have fled or escaped from um, domestic violence circumstances. Those people, those women and their kids are living on the street, uh, living in their cars, couch surfing. Uh, we need to accommodate families who have fled or escaped or have been kicked out because their abusers have antagonized uh, landlords. So uh, that's an area of focus we really have to lift up, I think. I know that you said, uh, as Ryan noted, the last time you were on was when we were sort of in a more severe part of the pandemic. And I'm interested to know all of the things that you put in place, the techs, the 24-7 services, what actually came to bear? You know, I know that you were very concerned about people being locked into their houses and not having access to friends and neighbors. Uh, what actually happened as far as you can tell? Did those fears come to pass? Yeah. Um... The uh, data that I reviewed um, in uh, preparation for our time this morning uh, shows me that we had a 300% increase in the number of uh, temporary restraining order cases that we opened in fiscal year 2021. So that's from uh, June, uh, July 1, 2020, which was right after the uh, pandemic uh, and restrictions descended. July 1, 2020 to June 30, 2021. 300% uh, increase in the number of TRO cases were actually opened than we had projected for that time period. Um, our staff attorneys uh, made 326% more court appearances on behalf of domestic violence action center clients during that period of time. And um, 200% more safety plans were completed with uh, survivors who uh, were lucky enough to find us, who were already receiving assistance from us. Um, the last uh, number I uh, would like to share is that 360% increase in the number of brief services uh, provided by our staff attorneys to people who had questions about a potential legal case or an ongoing legal case, uh, it's a brief service or just a consultation to figure out what's their next step, what kind of incision should they make. So it's pretty drastic. I mean, 300% uh, increases, you know, range uh, on our most core services. Uh, 
is a flashpoint, I think, for the community and one that I'd like to ask the community to take note of. You know, when you hear those numbers, it, it's staggering, as you notice. I mean, anything of, of that magnitude to increase by 300 percent, regardless of, you know, those various categories and, and areas and data points that you listed uh, is staggering. And, and, and you'd mentioned earlier with this new administration, with new elected leaders being uh, placed into office, I imagine that the strain on your resources, uh, obviously increasing by that much of a percentage, there's only so much that you folks are, are able to do. What are the conversations and what specifically do you feel uh, you'll be asking maybe members of the legislature as they head into session in a few months for support to help with these staggering statistics? Well, I think uh, we really have to um, capture their attention first and galvanize them to see this as a priority. I have been, you know, many places over the last six or seven months listening to uh, gubernatorial candidates, lieutenant governor candidates, city council candidates, and I don't hear anybody talking about domestic violence, which is why I'm so grateful that I'm in the audience or I'm in the meeting or I've been invited uh, to attend a session with one of the candidates um, because it's my responsibility to bring it up and to ask them what they think about it and uh, what ways they are willing to collaborate with us and uh, prioritize uh, domestic violence. Again, we started this conversation by saying the only time people notice it is when there's been a horrible uh, tragedy or when it's domestic violence awareness month. We need them to prioritize this all year long um, because people are bringing domestic violence with them to work, to school, to church, into the marketplace. Um, we can't look away. Yesterday was the men's march against violence and the new chief of police uh, said to those gathered, um, please don't look away. And that's what I'm asking our community um, also. Please don't look away. If you uh, notice red flags or have some intuition that something's not right, name it. Ask uh, privately if there's some way you can help. Uh, let them know that there are resources in the, in the community. We need a giant size uh, investment in community uh, programs. We need all of our systems to work together. The system doesn't work very well. Um, police, courts, child welfare, financial assistance. Um, it's all got to come together in a way that is a supportive landscape. And uh, we still have a little ways to go. You know, building on Ryan's question about that 300% increase, obviously your budget didn't increase by 300%. How are you doing financially and, and how are you able to meet all of these needs given that I would imagine that your budget is one size and then the needs are another? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. Um, we did get uh, a couple of uh, additional grants that we uh, hadn't anticipated. We did receive a few phone calls from uh, foundations uh, asking us what kinds of needs we were seeing. For example, the Clarence T.C. Ching Foundation called us and said, what do you need? Uh, this was early on. We have a whole caseload of clients who were working from home or uh, doing distance learning with their kids with no devices. Not everybody has a device. So um, they uh, funded us to purchase uh, laptops and iPads and uh, tablets and cell phones so that we could give uh, kids and moms uh, devices to help them uh, stay in touch with their uh, workplace or their school. Um, the real challenge that we're facing is um, the steady demand for the kinds of services we provide 
and the contracts that we receive, purchase of service contracts with our government agencies that don't increase by five cents from year to year. Uh, the amount of money included in the budget in our contracts this year is the same as it was 10 years ago. So the true costs of doing business, electricity goes up, health insurance goes up, um, pencils go up, Xerox leases go up, and the contract budget amount does not go up. Uh, we can't keep pace with the demand and uh, the workforce. Uh, recruitment, retention is hard when we can't give people salaries. You know what the current um, uh, workforce uh, challenges and workforce development challenges are. Uh, we're in the same uh, community facing those same challenges. And if we can't hire people at a living wage, we won't be able to hire them. Uh, so we've uh, got some challenges around the true cost of doing business. And that's not limited to the Demis Fonds Action Center. We're part of a coalition of community-based organizations that's really looking at true cost of doing business with the, with the government is essential. The government's not providing any of these services. They rely on us to serve the community. So we need to partner up in a new way around that. I want to circle back to another point that you made that I thought was pretty interesting, and that's uh, the homeless population and, and not yeah. a lot of conversation happening about those who have been uh, subjects of domestic violence and find themselves in a situation where they are houseless, uh, be it for escape or whatever reason it may be. You know, we've heard a lot of the current uh, mayor and his administration and this new core program that is, you know, taking a different stance on how they address homelessness. I'm wondering, uh, are you involved in any of those types of conversations? Has uh, the core program and the services that are now being provided to those homeless individuals, are they uh, in, in contact with, you know, those who may be suffering from domestic violence that have resulted in their homelessness? I am assuming, it's safe to assume, that the people that they are uh, encountering are people who have fled or have experienced domestic violence. I think the most important issue is, are they asking the question? Do they know whether the people that uh, they are supporting through their homeless programs or homeless outreach are survivors of domestic violence? If they are survivors of domestic violence and they have not been asked about it, um, they're missing a huge piece of um, support. It's really challenging for a person who has experienced the trauma to go into sort of a general population of houseless people uh, without specialized services, uh, without attention to the trauma that they have experienced. So I want to say that uh, it would be very, very important for them to incorporate in all of their outreach and all of their communication with houseless people a question uh, or an intervention that uh, names and addresses and includes a way to connect those people up with specialized domestic violence program services. We haven't been in those conversations. I'm interested, you know, that 300% that you mentioned, now that people are going back to work in person, certainly not at the same clip as before, but to a limited degree, and kids are, for the most part, back in school, have you seen those numbers decline? Has the need, um, you know, changed in any way since that peak part of lockdown? Yeah, I'm so, I'm so glad you asked that question. Thank you. You know, we do annually a one-day snapshot where we take a look at uh, what every single one of our 
programs does in service to the community. Uh, this year we did it on September 7th. Uh, on that day, we had 153 contacts with clients. That's a lot of contact with people who we are already working with. That's not necessarily the people out in the community. We had 35 in-person contacts with the uh, people on our caseload, who again, have been lucky enough to find us. Uh, there were 176 children in those families, um, 61 safety plans on that one day alone, 61 safety plans. So a safety plan is just a way of helping somebody think through what happens if they're in danger. Because if you've been a victim uh, of domestic violence, it's likely you, you will be a victim again. Very hard to think in that moment of crisis. So we do a lot. It's not an event safety plan. It's a process. So when circumstances change, the safety plan has to change. So on that day alone, we did 61 uh, safety plans, uh, 100 legal consultations given to um, the community uh, at large. So I don't know whether um, it has dropped. I think uh, more people uh, have access to an opportunity to ask questions, to uh, receive support. What we need is every place that a person goes, whether they're going to their primary care physician or they're going to work or they're going to uh, drop their children off at preschool or school, that um, the location where they're going they can uh, be supported. They can feel confident in confiding in someone that they're meeting either at work, a coworker or a supervisor, um, that uh, they can confide in them that, that they need help. We still don't have a well-informed workforce um, cadre of professionals who um, instill that kind of encouragement uh, to people, it's still a problem that um, has a lot of stigma and holds a lot of shame. People are embarrassed to be a victim of domestic violence. Um, and somehow we as a community have to give people permission uh, to talk about it, to let them know that we're not judging them for it, um, and to let them know that there are resources that they can get help. Um, that's Those are probably the most important messages. Because she is hearing at home, it's your fault. Nobody's going to believe you. What did you do to deserve this? And she's thinking, God, maybe I did do something. If I dinner was better, the children were quieter, if I was earning more money, if I was a better lover, if I was a better partner, if, you know, whatever it is, if I made what he liked for dinner, I mean, those are all the kinds of things that a person starts doubting themselves, questioning their choices, um, because those are the messages that they're getting from their abuser. You know, one of the unique things about, you know, this topic is that the profile of those who fall into this category as someone who's suffered from domestic abuse is wide ranging, right? You, you have, uh, of course, a lot of times people just assume it's the woman, but you have children that are involved. And, and we've seen in the headlines recently of children who've ultimately been killed or are missing because of some of the uh, domestic violence that is happening within their homes. I'm wondering if the profile of what you're seeing here locally matches what's happening nationally. Uh, you know, with, with everything that's happening during this time? And, and maybe what are some of the differences and the unique things that you've seen here in Hawaii that are maybe a, something that is more unique to our environment and where we live? Mm -hmm. Well, I think uh, we're not 
experiencing anything in this community that is uh, radically different from what uh, communities across the country have experienced, um, either in relation to the pandemic or uh, in relation particularly to domestic violence. Of course, the diversity of our community uh, raises um, some challenges that we have um, managed to uh, incorporate, assimilate into the way we help our diverse community. For example, we have a, a Japanese advocate, a Korean advocate, Kofa advocate, Filipino advocate, a Native Hawaiian advocate, LGBTQ advocate. People are um, much more likely to feel supported and ask for help when the person they're getting help from looks like them, understands their community norms, um, can speak their language. So these are things that we've really had to um, build so that we're responding to this community in particular. Uh, we have support groups that are for Kofa families, um, Native Hawaiian families, Filipino families, uh, Japanese families, um, Korean families. And it's very important for us to continue um, investing in um, the diverse ways in which communities respond. Western mainstream uh, white person way of serving the community is not in sync with our community. Um, law enforcement isn't the answer for everybody. Indigenous communities, immigrant communities do not feel supported by law enforcement. So there's lots of barriers and obstacles that we have to overcome as a community to make sure that the families in our community are getting the help that they need. You know, you talked about, you know, people interacting in spaces, whether it's the preschool or work or what have you. Um, if you suspect that someone is perhaps the uh, victim of domestic abuse, what do you suggest is the best way to start that conversation? Because as you said, there can be a lot of shame associated with this issue. Um, and people might feel like, well, it's none of my business. I don't want to bother uh, him or her. I, I don't I don't want to get involved. Mm -hmm. I think that is um, sort of the involuntary uh, reaction that people have is like, well, really, I don't know. I don't want to ruin my friendship by saying something about her partner or whatever. I guess what I say is um, let's suspend judgment. Let's listen with an open heart and let's ask questions with grace. Uh, there's a way to say to somebody, I'm concerned about you. Um, I want to ask you a couple of questions. I've seen some changes in um, the way you interact with us at work or the way uh, you are when we get together. You don't seem as available as you once were. I can't seem to get you on the phone. You're not really responding to my texts. Whatever it is, uh, each situation is quite different. Um, but if you name those things and you let the person know that whatever decision they make, you will support them, you will be there when they're ready to confide and disclose. What I might do would be completely different than what you might do, Ryan. And we have to just allow for uh, decision-making differences, uh, pacing differences, um, belief system differences, values differences. Maybe the messages they're getting from their family or their community or their church is, you don't leave, uh, you don't leave your, your husband or your partner. Uh, you made a commitment, you stay there. Um, so we have to let people know that they don't deserve uh, to be hurt. They have a right to live uh, free and safe and that I will be there when they're ready 
and I can help connect them with resources, but we have to name it. If they're not going to, then, then we can, but we have to set aside all of our biases and judgments and um, the stigma that we communicate even inadvertently or unintentionally. Um, so that would be my, uh, my call to action for the community. You know, we have these types of conversations a lot of times, as you noted, because of the increase, a lot of it is triage. You are looking for ways to support what has already happened. Uh, but when you look at a problem like this, oftentimes you have to go to the root of the problem. Uh, is there any sort of effort or, or do you have the resources? Maybe the question should be uh, to educate the abusers, you know, because a lot of times uh, there is this um, you, you know, as we deal with these issues, it's it's already happened and you're, you've already faced some sort of suffering. But oftentimes you want to look for preventative measures, ways in which you can stop the abuse from even happening to begin with. Is there anything within your capacity uh, and this organization's capacity to really look at the deeper problem of how this starts? There's uh, two questions embedded there, in there. One is, uh, do we work with abusers? At the Domestic Violence Action Center, we don't. But Child and Family Services and Parents and Children Together do have programs for uh, abuse perpetrators of domestic violence. As far as prevention is concerned, I'm so happy you asked that question. Uh, we have not done a good job uh, investing in prevention as a community. We're talking about new leadership coming in. Uh, again, a right-sized investment in prevention, which means we have to talk to young children, intermediate school children, high school youth, uh, college-educated, college-enrolled youth. Um, to help them understand what is a healthy relationship, what are the red flags? If they start uh, uh, mating or dating, what would they be looking for? Um, this is the smallest program at the Domestic Violence Action Center and the least invested by uh, foundations and, and government. Uh, generally, funders like to know how many TROs did we do? How many telephone calls did we answer? How many court appearances did we make? How many cases did we open? When we go into classrooms, uh, our team, we have a team program, it's called TAP 808. Last year, they talked to uh, 3,700 youth. Um, that's a lot of kids across the state. However, there's hundreds of thousands of kids across the state. If we had the capacity to build on a program like that, funders don't like that because they don't know whether we're exactly preventing it from occurring in five years from now or 10 years from now. So it's not quite as tangible. We have to have a, we have to take a leap of faith and educate our kids and assume that with the right information and with the right support to their families and to them, they will make good choices. Without the information, much harder to make good choices. You know, we're almost out of time, but I do want to circle back to the case that we started our program talking about. Um, when you see something like that, what goes through your mind? Again, for folks who are just joining us, there was a Honolulu police did arrest an 81-year-old man on suspicion earlier today in connection with the death of his 76-year-old wife at their Ala Moana area apartment. Um, just, Nancy, your thoughts on this case. Um, that loss belongs to all of us. Uh, there is some way uh, that along their path, something was occurring that was either um, minimized or ignored or um, not taken seriously. And it is very important for us in order to avoid the kind of trauma 
that their family will suffer going forward. Um, it's our responsibility to notice, speak up, reach out, um, and help prevent. Um, hindsight is, of course, precious. But as uh, Ryan was just saying, what, what kind of prevention are we doing as a, as a community? Um, the only way to avoid uh, domestic homicides is to uh, pay attention way before it gets this serious. Well, we are almost out of time, but we want to allow you just a final message that you may have for those tuning in, you know, resources that are available. Maybe someone out there uh, is a victim themselves. Your message uh, as we close out and as you continue on in this very uh, important awareness campaign this month. Well, when people are living with domestic violence, uh, the terror that they feel uh, is immobilizing. And it seems unimaginable to take a step or make a phone call. Every survivor that I have ever seen or spoken to or supported has said, it was a difficult decision. I'm so happy I took the step. Um, when we uh, ask them to give a message to other survivors in the community, they always say, we want you to know it's worth it to take the step. Um, the fear is real. And we're here to uh, walk with them throughout their entire journey to freedom and safety. So I would say uh, you can call any of our domestic violence programs in the community anonymously and confidentially, ask whatever questions you have, um, and uh, think about what decisions you'd like to make with the information you've obtained. So make the call and we'll be here to be with you. Nancy Creedman, it's always wonderful to catch up with you. Thank you for all that you do to help our community in this area. We really appreciate you. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, always good to hear from her and so impressed with the tremendous work that her organization does under her leadership. She talked about just the dramatic increase during COVID. There were a lot of concerns that being under lockdown um, would cause an increase in domestic violence. And indeed, she said that did bear out uh, roughly 300% across the board when you look at their, uh, you know, their response calls and the TROs and all of the areas that she laid out. If you missed any part of this, of course, you can go back and watch after we get off the air right now. Uh, this also broadcasts as a podcast and of course on Channel 50. But Ryan, I, I really liked your question about prevention and really trying to make an investment in that area, which she says shows less tangible results, but of course is the kind of work that we want done. Yeah, and of course, with any issue, oftentimes you want to look at the root to prevent any of this abuse from happening to begin with. But as she noted, funding is an issue and you know she bared some of the costs that with this substantive increase in the statistics that they are seeing, there hasn't been necessarily more funding that has been allocated to them. And when you look at the true cost of how they've been operating as a business, not much has changed within a 10 year span. And so, you know, she's calling on lawmakers, uh, the next administration, uh, of course, the governor, as well as other elected officials to seriously consider, uh, as she said, a substantial investment into this issue because it covers so many other areas, uh, as she also mentioned, homelessness. And I think that is a conversation, of course, uh, that not many people are having is that some of these families that end up on the street are ultimately fleeing from a home that was, you know, uh, had domestic violence happening within the confines of their home. And so this 
stems far into so many other facets of the issues that we discuss on the show, but often goes unnoticed. Yeah, if you want to get more information, of course, you can go to the Domestic Violence Action Center's website, domesticviolenceactioncenter.org. There's a resource list of phone numbers that you can call depending on your specific needs. She also did mention that they have people who speak a multitude of languages that are spoken throughout our community and that some people might feel more comfortable interfacing with some of those responders. Um, Also that, you know, if you see something, say something, she did sort of lay out a delicate way to have that conversation and to be a resource. It's a responsibility on all of us. And that, you know, that message from her also about that terrible tragedy that we read about today in the paper um, that she said that that death belongs to all of us. And so we need to do more to help people in those kinds of situations. So uh, wonderful, of course, to hear from her, a heavy topic, but one that we really cannot ignore. On Monday, Ryan, we are switching back to the world of politics, talking to Tommy Waters and Kalea Nakoa. They are city council candidates for District 4. Yeah, we're going to continue on in our conversations with the candidates for the Honolulu City Council. Uh, and it will be interesting to catch up with the chair of the council and get his thoughts as, and his opponent's thoughts on some of the issues that are impacting their district as well. We thank you so much for tuning in and uh, we hope that you all have a great and safe weekend. We'll see you right back here on Monday for another episode of Spotlight Hawaii. Take care. Aloha. Aloha. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long Drugs.